Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, just three verses of Scripture, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all, also to all who have loved His appearing. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we approach Your Word with reverence, uh, with antici- anticipation for what is here for us today, as the Apostle Paul writes to his son in the Gospel 2,000 years ago, we gaze into this text. and We ask You, Lord, as we honor this as Holy Scripture, to understand that this Word is a living oracle speaking to us today, to minister to our hearts, our souls, our minds. Help us this morning to receive Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the late 1990s, I started reading John Grisham's fiction books and enjoyed them, read up to that point most of the fiction books that he wrote. I think it's been several years since I've picked up a a book on fiction, but uh, Grisham's books were solid. And I finally picked up a book that wasn't fiction. It was a true story about a man named Ron Williamson lived in Ada, Oklahoma, who was falsely accused of murdering a young woman. The book was entitled The Innocent Man. Ron Williamson spent 11 years in prison before he was exonerated by DNA evidence. Now, what I just described in a few sentences, Grisham masterfully writes about in an entire book, and it was an excellent book. The part I focused on, and I imagine most people did reading this book, is how much of a tragedy it was for a man to spend 11 years in prison for a crime that he had nothing to do with. It was a miscarriage of justice, and much of the book focuses on this aspect of how this happened. This man lost 11 years of his life as a young man had a prospect of being a great pitcher, Uh, played some fairly high-level baseball, but then ends up for 11 years in prison. And there is no amount of money that can compensate that much time. It's just an injustice. It's 11 years of your life. I don't care if they give you millions of dollars, you don't get that 11 years back. And then there was his reputation. For that 11 years, people thought Ron was a criminal. Everybody in town, I, I don't imagine Ada's that big of a, a city, and everybody in that community knew Ron's a murderer. People would talk in hushed tones. I babysat him when he was a kid. I, I, I went to school with him. I never dreamed he would turn out like this. When in fact he didn't. He was an innocent man. 
He got out of prison. His life was marked with tragedy after that. He never did bring it back together. And he died in 2004 at the age of 51 years old. Injustice. Life is not fair to all of us at times. Everybody has a story where they could say, you know, that was really unfair. I didn't deserve that particular trial. But for some people, like Ron Williamson, life really didn't appear to be fair. Suffering is a reality that we must all deal with. It's part of the human experience. We suffer. The Bible spends a great deal of time walking through this reality and how we manage that in light of the kingdom of God. I, I feel sorry for Ron. I feel sorry for Ron's family. But the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world was perpetrated upon Christ Jesus. This was a man who never sinned, never committed any sin. And yet he was arrested and he was executed. He was an innocent man who was the embodiment of pure holiness and pure righteousness. Indeed, God manifested in the flesh, Yahweh walking among us. And he was murdered. Injustice. Sitting in Roman jails, prisons. I've spent time as a visitor. I was thinking last night, trying to count what comes to memory. I've been in three county jails and sat in two prisons. One medium and one maximum at one time. It was the, the top level maximum security prison in the nation until they built a supermax in Colorado. I was visiting a young man. I was asked to go see this young man. He was in solitary confinement in a county jail because he was on suicide watch. And he was the family of some people in our church. And they said, would you go visit him? This has been 20 years ago. I, I got off work. And at work in those days, I would carry a, a box cutter, like a carpet cutter knife that had the blade extension in my back pocket every day. And I got off work and went to jail and walked in and the young lady sitting behind the glass saw me and they were getting ready to put me through the screening, the pat down. She saw me. I had not seen her in years. And she said, guys, I know him. Let him through. I mean, I had not seen her in years. <laughs> she just, he's good. And I passed through, and I went into this little bitty room and sat down in these wooden chairs. And when I sat down in the wooden chair, I felt that box cutter hit the wood chair. It was still in my back pocket. And I sat there and I thought, you have one goal in life, and that is to get out of this jail cell uh, without getting caught with that box cutter. Because they are going to admit you if you are caught with this knife uh, inside. And uh, lo looking at that, I was like, okay, now I understand how things get through jails. Uh, this explains a lot. I was in another county jail about four months ago uh, here locally and was admitted into the jail, past the cells, walking past prisoners, and was never searched one time. Not patted down. Nobody asked any questions. I didn't sign in. Um, I was simply, I spent about two hours inside this jail cell walking around the entire premise, every square foot of this jail cell, offices, the halls of the jails, past the inmates, and I'm walking through there thinking, this explains so much. I remember walking across the grounds of a maximum security prison. I was visiting an inmate with his mother and 
walking through, the windows are open, it's summertime, and I heard the screams of a man coming from one of the windows, and that, that is sound is seared into my mind. The man who wrote the words that we read this morning wrote them from a prison cell. There's no ordinary prison cell, there's no air conditioning, there's no doors with bars. It's really a cave or a pit that they throw them into. Uh, nowhere really to use the restroom. They lower food down into buckets. Um, this is where you spend time before you die, so they don't really care. There's not all these rules, there's not laws about how prisoners need to be treated. This is the condition that Paul writes the words to us this morning. He was an innocent man in a sense. He was responsible for the deaths of Christian uh, people, Christ followers, before his conversion. And if he lived today by the laws of our land, Paul would have legitimately faced the legal consequences. Because religious conversion doesn't make you exempt. If it did, there would be lots of prisoners today that uh, are free because they came to faith. But Paul didn't. He lived in a different time under different laws. So in a sense, He's not an innocent man, but for what he's in prison for here when he writes, it is for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see and hear the remorse of Paul's actions throughout his letters. You hear it, the sentiment, he's sorry. He lives with this guilt his entire life until he dies. He is soon to be executed. Tradition says that he was beheaded. We're almost certain that whatever the manner of death, he did die a martyr's death. He was imprisoned under Emperor Nero. We know a lot about Nero uh, just from our history. Nero was a maniacal, sadistic leader of the Roman Empire. Few leaders of any empire in history have been as insane and as sadistic as Nero. There are things he did that I wouldn't even talk about from the pulpit. And he turns his focus upon the Christians and they suffer mass persecution. We are reading the words this morning, the closing words of a letter, a very personal, heartfelt letter of a man who knows he's going to die soon. And there's something remarkable about reading the words and hearing the words of people who are about to die. There is no nonsense. If I were standing here today and I knew I was going to die tonight and I had one last sermon I can promise you, whatever I preached on, it would be very different than what I'm saying this morning. The tone, everything about it would be drastically different. You know you've got one shot left. You're not going to be playing games. You're not going to be making jokes. You've got something to say. This is Paul. He's expressing his last words. Old men preaching don't have time to play games. I, I grew up hearing lots of old men preach. And there was an urgency in their calling. They knew their days were numbered. They were more aware that the sand in the top of the hourglass is nearly empty, and I don't have time to play games. This is Paul. So he writes, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He says something very similar in Philippians 2. He says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. 
So in Philippians, he says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, but in 2 Timothy, he said, I'm already being poured out. It has started. I am a dying man. What does he mean by being poured out as a drink offering? Well, the imagery, pretty self-explanatory if you read in Numbers that it was an offering of wine that was given with the animal sacrifices, and the offering was not complete until the drink offering was given. Kind of symbolic here, Paul's using this imagery of, of the wine being poured out upon the sacrifice. It's imagery of blood. But the offering was not complete until the drink offering was poured. And Paul is telling us, I'm being poured out. In other words, my sacrifice of my life is finished. The words, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. I've read those for years and it's always caused me to shudder a little bit. Just the imagery there of a man saying, I'm already being poured out like a drink. I'm already dying. It's personal. It's painful. Paul was given a gift, the gift of knowing the time of his death, the ability to prepare. Not everybody has that ability. Death catches some people by complete surprise, and other people, they are given a gift of saying, you have the opportunity to get your affairs in order. So I'll ask you this morning, I'll have two more passages of Scripture, but I want us to see these because I am relating to this idea. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is page 966 in your pew Bibles. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read 10 verses of Scripture. And I read these words this morning as an encouragement to us because we are all finite creatures. Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about our bodies, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, I, I want you to see the imagery here. He's, he is referring to our death as being something that's actually, in reality, it's us being swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God has ordained this for me. Who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I think Paul's making an assumption there. How many of us could say, well, actually, I'd rather be out of this body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due and what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. What an amazing word picture Paul is painting there. He said, this is a tent, 
But if this tent's destroyed, God has prepared not a tent, a building that lives eternal in the heavens. Paul would say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain. So in verse 7 he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This is the measure of success in your Christian walk, is that you keep the faith. That's it. That's the measure of success in life. We can say this a thousand times. Don't care how much money you make in your life and leave behind or don't. No matter what kind of position you achieve in a corporation. Doesn't matter anything other than did you finish this race? Did you keep the faith? That's the metric. That's the measure of success of any race is I made it to the finish line. And if you are relying on your own strength to keep your faith, you will live with a nagging fear in the back of your head that you might not have enough gas in the tank to make it to the finish line. So here, Romans 8. I want to give this to you as an encouragement. I heard someone say a few weeks ago, if I wake up tomorrow with any sort of bent toward Jesus and the gospel, any sort of faith in me, he said, I'm not going to take that as a pat on my back, I'm going to say thank you, Jesus, for having faith for another day to walk with you. And we know, Paul said, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now watch the order that He, he follows. For those that He foreknew, he, often, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom He predestined, He called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and, he, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. He will hold you fast. Philippians 1, He who has begun a good work in you will perfect that good work unto the end. 1 John Two, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist, that Antichrist has come, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might be plain that they are not all of us. One of my favorite Passages in the Bible, Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Oh, what is Jesus doing right now? Do you know what Jesus is doing right this minute? He sits at the right hand of the Father, the Bible says, and he makes intercessions for the saints. Jesus is interceding for you this morning. That's Scripture. That's what Jesus is doing in the heavenlies. He is making intercession for the saints. He does this for Simon. He says, Simon, I have prayed for you. Like, what an idea. Simon's like, wait a minute, you, the, you Jesus, you've been praying for me? And Jesus said, yes, I've been praying for you. What have I been praying? I've been praying that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, imagine Jesus says, hey, I've been praying for you. What are you going to say? 
You'll probably say something like what Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you've denied me three times. Like Peter's like, I'm all in, Jesus. And he goes, I prayed for you that your faith won't fail you and you're going to deny me. You're going to fail me. And I've prayed for you. Jesus has prayed that your faith. What happens? Peter was a spectacular fail, failure after those words. But Peter kept the faith. Peter found a place of repentance. The key, one of the keys to keeping the faith is to constantly find places of repentance. If you don't know how to repent, you will not finish this race. You will not keep the faith because you will both in the future keep the faith and you will in the future fail God. Both can be true. They were true for Peter. Jesus predicted it. But Peter, he kept the faith. He finished the race. He will hold you fast. The songwriter said, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, and He will hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious is His holy sight. He will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. You're going to finish this race and you're going to keep the faith. You're going to fail too? Yeah, you are. But you can still keep the faith and finish the race because God has granted us a glorious gift of repentance. The same gospel that saved us in the first part is the same gospel that keeps us saved every day. I am kept saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need the gospel as much today as I ever have. The last verse, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. There is an idea in Scripture that was driven home to me uh, by N.T. Wright's writings, and it's the idea that we are faithful because God was first faithful. N.T. Wright's tome, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, 2,000 pages in a book of Wright showing how God is faithful. I can be faithful because God is faithful to us. We can be righteous because of His righteousness. There is a crown for awaiting for us of righteousness. So we talk about this idea a lot. I mention it occasionally here from this pulpit, the idea of the kingdom of God being already here and not yet here. It's the already, the not yet. Both are true. I use the example of, um, I've used the example in the past of, hey, there's a car in the parking lot that's my car. My name's on the title. It's my car. Me and my family are the only ones that can drive it. If you take it without my permission, you took my car, not yours. It's already mine. 
But if I stop making payments on that car, the bank is going to come and show me whose car it really is. It's already mine, but it's not yet mine. It's, it's, this, it's in transition. I have a friend of mine who's entering his first year of seminary. He's writing his first big seminary paper. And he's writing it on this idea of the already and the not yet. And he, he sent the paper to me a few days ago. said, hey, would you mark it up, give some thoughts, ideas, whatever. And I did and emailed it back to him. And he called me yesterday. He said, can we have a conversation about um, some of the things that you input? And, and when I write papers, I do the same things. Nobody can edit their own work. I send them to somebody else. It's like, tell me what I'm missing. So I was, I was doing this. And we just got to talking about this idea of the kingdom. And the whole idea of the kingdom of God is here, but it is going to be among us in the future in such a greater reality. And it's similar to our righteousness. Our righteousness, we are already righteous because, because of the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ that was imputed to us by faith through the work of Christ's death and His resurrection. So we have a righteousness. We have an imputed righteousness. It's not my own. But there is coming a day when we die or when Christ returns, whichever comes first, doesn't really matter because the dead in Christ are going to rise with those that rise up to meet Him in the air. So it's going to be a great reunion to greet King Jesus and to crown Him as King of kings and Lord of lords where He will set up kingdom and rule on this earth. That day is coming. And when it does, Paul said, there is a crown of righteousness that he is going to give to me. Is there a greater benefit of all that we do than to be crowned with the righteousness of Christ? For Christ to say, this is the full righteousness. This is my righteousness that I crown you with. And then Paul said he can do that because he is a righteous judge. Not all judges are righteous, but King Jesus is righteous. And the picture here is that Jesus is going to give us what He already has. He is righteousness. He's not just righteous. He is righteousness. Notice, Scripture says God isn't just loving. It says God is love. It's His nature. It's who He is. God is also righteous. And King Jesus is going to grant us that crown of righteousness. His final gift to us is His nature of righteousness. And that alone and nothing else should be enough for us to say, no matter the pain, no matter the cost, I will, through God's strength, keep the faith. I want that crown of righteousness, that final perfection that my soul yearns for. Paul said we, we groan in this tent awaiting for what is to come. We're yearning for that final crown of God's seal of approval. And then Paul said, it's, it's not just for me. It's like, yeah, Paul, you're Paul. You're the Apostle Paul. I've heard preachers say, like, my goal is to be like the Apostle Paul. I've never thought that. I'm no, under no disillusion that I'll ever be anything like Paul. Timothy, it's a good marker for me. I want to be like Timothy. Very few people are actually ever going to be like Paul. It's like, yeah, Paul, the crown of righteousness... But Paul said, it's not just for me. He said, it's for all those who love His appearing. I love the vision of the, 
the final gathering together of God's people when the Bible says that it's a multitude that no man can number. Like, there is going to be a lot of people on that day. That encourages me because, like, if I've seen and heard Christianity framed in such a way that almost thinks, like, who could be saved? Like, this, like, who could meet this standard? And the answer is nobody can meet this standard. Not one single person who ever lived. Christ is the standard. That's the whole idea of the gospel, is I am saved on His holiness, on His nature, on His righteousness, not mine. If I'm dependent on me for salvation, I am in trouble. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This is what He does already. He leads us in paths of righteousness. So I close by circling back to the beginning of this message that we are all going to die. Guaranteed for every one of us, short of the return of Christ, we'll we'll all die. And to talk about this, according to Scripture, is not morbid, but rather it is wisdom. If you turn with me to Psalm 90, this is page 496. I think we read through this just a while back in our scripture readings. Psalm 90, this is attributed to Moses, gets into the Psalms. Inserted, this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Not not a lot has changed in a few thousand years. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are all soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us. Here it is. This is why I say, The Bible tells us it's wise to talk about these things. He says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad for all our days. 
Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yea, establish the work of our hands. Moses is teaching us in Scripture. Be aware of the brevity of your life. Number your days that we may have a heart of wisdom. I grew up hearing my great-grandmother say all the time, the Lord willing. And then, I mean, it may be, uh, the Lord willing, we're going to the mall tomorrow. The Lord willing, I have to go to Walmart tonight. It was just constantly the Lord willing. I didn't know why she said that. I know now where she gets it. It's from the book of James who said, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's where she got it from. The Lord willing, because if the Lord wills it to be, it will come to pass. And if He does not will it to be, I don't care what plans you make, it will not happen in your life. If the Lord wills. I have plans this evening to go somewhere tomorrow. I have plans tomorrow morning to go somewhere. I've got plans a week from now for us to go out of town. But all of that, if the Lord wills. I love how she took verse 15 literally, the Lord willing. James said life is a vapor. I've pictured it as walking out. You don't get too many chances around here, but you walk out on a cold morning and you just kind of breathe out. You see that breath go out. You just see that, that mist there for just a couple seconds and then it's just it's gone. James said that's what your life is like. Make it count. Don't waste it. Be aware of how much time you have left. I close this morning with a poem I've read and listened to many times written by John Piper. And I want the final words of this poem, the last sentence is what I'm going for, to take home with you and embrace and believe and live until you die. This is a description of a man of God. See him on his knees, hear his constant pleas. Heart of every aim, hallowed be your name. See him in the word, helpless, cool, unstirred, heaping on the pyre, heed until the fire. See him with his books, tree beside the brooks, drinking at the root till the branch bear fruit. See him with his pen, written line and then, Better thought preferred, deep from within the word. See him in the square, kept from subtle snare, unrelenting sleuth on the scent of truth. See him on the street, seeking to entreat, meek and treasuring. Do you know my king? See him in dispute, firm and resolute, driven by the fame of his father's name. See him at his trade, done the plan is made men will have his skills if the father wills 
See him at his meal, praying now to feel thanks, and if be graced, God in every taste. See him with his child, has he ever smiled such a smile before, playing on the floor? See him with his wife, parable for life. In this sacred scene, she is heaven's queen. See him stray, he groans. One is true, he owns. What is left for me? Fallibility. See him in lament, should I now repent? Yes, and then proclaim, all is for my fame. See him worshiping, watch the sinner sing. Spared the burning flood, only by the blood. See him on the shore, whence this ocean store, from your God above, thimble full of love. See him now asleep, watch the helpless reap, but no credit take, just as when awake. See him nearing death, listen to his breath, through the ebbing pain, final whisper, gain. That's Paul. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's better. For the child of God, death does not exist. I preached a sermon in the series in the book of John. You will never see death. It's not a reality for the people in the kingdom. If you are united with Christ, no matter what this life brings, you can say your final word in this life. Gain. Let's stand. Holy God, this morning, we have looked into your word. We have peered deeply all throughout scripture to see that for the people of God, that just as Paul, who knew his days were numbered, so too we should every day have an awareness among ourselves that we number our days. Our time on this earth is limited. This is not to make us somber. You have not given this to bring us down, but you have given this reality to us to sober us, to understand that this tent is temporary, but that inside this tent dwells an eternal living soul that will never, ever die. We had a beginning, but we, like you, now have no ending. We shall never die. Our soul, our being, our consciousness, us, we will live forever and ever and ever, either in a place of eternal damnation and torment, or we will live forever in the glory of the King. And Lord, we embrace this reality. It does not scare us, but Lord, it draws us closer to you to put our faith, our confidence, not simply in acknowledgement, but Lord, a loyalty and allegiance to the King that we are all in to follow Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, that whatever you would ask of us, there is no price too great. There is no calling too great. There is no challenge that you give us that we don't embrace willingly, knowing that you are working on our behalf and with us for our good. So Lord, this morning,
My prayer is that we would all from this place walk in wisdom with the King, that we would walk daily with King Jesus in His Word, in His Spirit, that the Holy Spirit within us and among us would lead us and guide us into all truth, would be with us, Lord, that we would simply be people who are worshipers of God every day and longing and striving to be disciples of Jesus, that we gaze into Your Word as a mirror, we look at the commandments, we receive them not as suggestions, but as commandments to embrace and to live out in our everyday lives. And I pray, Lord, this week as we go separate ways and so many of us have plans and things that we want to accomplish, and yet we pray that we will do these things if the Lord wills. We want to do Your will, so help us to be sensitive to that still, small voice that we know so well in a world full of chaos and noise and multitude of voices. Let us, as your sheep, know the voice of the shepherd. Follow it, embrace it, and obey it. Submit to it. We ask this this morning in the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Together in dismissal, can we lift our hands together and just honor and worship Him this morning. Father, this morning we are worshipers today of You. We acknowledge You this morning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we, we bow in Your presence. We exalt You. We lift You up. We magnify You. Jesus, we love You. Lord, our hearts are toward You. Lord, we give you all praise, all glory, and all honor. And we thank you today, people who are grateful and thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning.